Welcome to the Grizzle Pod, episode seven. Scott, Tom, we are Grizzle. We're bringing the big money heat every week. You real know it. analysis, real analysis, bringing you guys what it takes to make money in the market. Uh, we're not just commentators. We're not just talking about other people making money. We're laying real bets on the line, and we're bringing that insight to you guys. And um, thank you very much for everyone who supported the Grizzle Pod. Uh, our ask for everyone, if you're feeling what we're doing every week, please do give that a rate. Uh, you know, give it a give it a rating. And we're also climbing the charts, and we can only do it with you guys. So uh, leaving a rating goes a long way. Really appreciate that. The goal here is to make this a real big pod by the end of the year. We want to own that investing category because we're the only ones putting real money down, real bets on the table, and giving people a real rational idea of how that bet is put on the table. Yeah, no sleep no sleep till Brooklyn, Tom. We're going to number no, one. No, going the whole way. So, guys, please rate, review, and tell a friend. Let's get this to number one. Let's do it. Let's Thank do you. It. Scott, what do we got? All right, we, we, got? we got a great agenda for you guys today. So first, we're talking about the rotation going on in the stock market. There's a big rotation. Things that used to work aren't working anymore. We don't think this is transitory. This is going to be going on in the future. So you need to understand. We're talking about cyclicals. They're back in favor. Next, we're talking about why you always bet on tangible growth versus what we call sci-fi growth. We're going to explain more of what that is. Next, we have inflation. We're going to map the 70s experience. That was the last time we had a real inflation scare and kind of what worked, what didn't back in that time period. So that's going to be an important one. And we also have hedges against inflation. The two that we're talking about today are copper and housing. They're big ones. It's good to understand them. And then lastly, we got to talk about the sell-off in pot stocks. Has anything really changed or is this just par for the course? We're going to let you know on that. So why don't we start first with the market rotation that's going on, Tom? Nice. Nice. So that's, that's interesting. So we have one chart for you, just mapping out performance. We went back and looked at when the market really started working in a different way than it has in the past year. You know, 2020, big for growth stocks, big for sci-fi growth, big for tech. Not working so much anymore. Since February 12th, if we look at value stocks, they're the best performing. They're up 6%. Then you have S&P 500 is up a bit, one a little more than 1%. And then the NASDAQ, which was the winner in 2020, is now down 6% since February 12th, so underperforming. And we also threw in the ARK Innovation ETF. If you want to think of super speculative growth, that's ARK Innovation. That one's down a whopping 27% since February 12th. So the market has really flipped. All those stay-at-home tech stocks, they've been rotating out of them into cyclicals. Some of that is the cruise lines, the ones that are coming back, the airlines travel, but some of it is just commodity stocks. Hard producers are the winners. And we think that's going to continue due to inflation. Yeah. And so I looked at just that period, this exact period, Scott, uh, looking at the performance of, of just, you know, what were the top performing categories, right? So at the top, you had airlines. So during this period where the S&P, how much was the S&P up? Like flattish, kind of flat 1%. Yep. Yep. Uh, airlines were up 20% mm. and oil was up 15%. Right. There and you and yeah. so you had metals up 10 percent. This is the S&P 500. Uh, so obviously commodities, uh, cyclicals doing their thing. On the flip side, what was interesting is automobiles were, were down 25 percent 
and um, and it's in automobiles where, where the the category was the worst performing category. But you know what was what what that was was Tesla, Scott. Wow. It was down twenty four percent. And lo and behold, Scott, Tesla was down twenty four percent, which really uh, which really aligns with how much Arc was down. Arc was down twenty seven percent. So you're seeing this high correlation of where Tesla goes, Arc goes. These are very combined assets. Uh, and Tesla's a huge market cap in the auto market, right? So they really are a big driver of yeah. that performance in that auto bucket. Exactly. So we can kill this chart. Yeah, so the the talking about this, I think I think it's important to know. Tesla's addition to the S&P 500, pretty dramatic here, right? So you've got it now. So it, it's, it has a weight of 1.6% in the S&P 500, hmm. the addition of Tesla. Now, I looked at how, so when you look in this auto category, I'm like, oh, well, how do the other autos do? Because if the auto category itself is down, well, in fact, Ford and GM were up during this period. Wow. Cyclicals and all. Um, so, but their weight, so Tesla is 1.6% of the index, but both of those car companies are 0.2%. This is that market cap skew, right? So you're getting, you, you, you're seeing that flow through. So the S&P doesn't always work like you think because it, it all depends on the weightings. Exactly. And, and, and this is where once you start to look at the attribution of the underlying moves of the overall index, you really, you really get a good idea, which really comes back to that graph just saying, that the I think it was the Russell Valley, you know, it was up the most, right? And you're looking at it, it would have had it would have had some of these airlines in them. It would have had uh, obviously the, um, uh, the the commodities as well, the oils, yeah. the metals. So I think there's there's something going on under the surface that investors need to understand. We have interest rates going up, right? And interest mm -hmm. rates determine how much money costs. You're borrowing money, everything like that, and that flows through into valuations. So as money becomes more expensive the market and investors are less willing to wait for future results. So, you know, what we call sci-fi growth is like, I'm going to send people to the moon or I'm going to colonize Mars. Yeah. Last year, when money was essentially free, it's yeah. okay to keep borrowing and waiting and waiting and waiting. But once money becomes a little more expensive, there's a real cost to your revenue not coming in five years versus one year. So people right now are less willing to wait for some yeah. of that sci-fi uh, high spec growth companies. And so that's why you're seeing their performance uh, is is much, much worse than the value stocks, the commodities. Yeah, and that, that really is the you know big difference here. And I guess we're gonna get into it and talk about it, but you know, Grizzle has, and we talked about it in the last pod, we've always been in the camp of tangible growth. I mean, tangible growth is something very different than sci-fi. This is a, you know, these these are, these are experiments. These are, uh, uh, you know, the classic is that Virgin Galactic, but it goes on and on. There's a lot of them out there. A lot of the electric vehicle, SPACs, things like that, where you know there's very little cash flow or even revenue to talk about. So when we say tangible growth, I guess we're talking about, okay, it could be a growth stock. It could have a high valuation, but there's lots of cash flow coming. In. The growth of the cash flow is, is significant, and there's some there already. Scott, we both jumped on to a very interesting clubhouse. It was with Ark. And I was just like, what What are they talking about? It, would, what, what <laughs> it was went the off the rails quickly, didn't it? What was the technology, Scott? It, it, so, no, it something wasn't with genome research. It was something with genome research. And it was actually a Twitter space. It's all the same sort of thing. Uh -huh. But we, I said, Scott, you got to jump on, see what's going on here. And um, so Scott, Scott and I are equity analysts. You know, we, we listen to how, uh, you know, investment theses are laid out 
all good. I wanted to hear it. Business models all the time, yeah. But this was wild, man. This was like really, really far out there. I'm like, this is very interesting. But I kind of felt like I was listening more like a Bill, you know, Bill Nye, the science guy, or like some sort of like, you know, discovery thing. And I was like, wait a minute. Are there like, this is something so far out there. Uh, but you guys are investing in companies on this. This is not going to fare well. This, this is what I learned as an analyst. You know, there's lots of information out there and you start to learn what to kind of ignore and what is actually important. So it's good information to know what these companies are doing. But at the yeah. end of the day, it's not in the here and now. It's not going to really move stocks. It's more about this company mm -hmm. says they're going to generate revenue in five years. Does the market care to wait or not? That's really more important than you understanding how they do their research in technical terms, really. Scott, we, I think we have a great graph, and, and we'll talk through it, but sh just uh, talking about last year performance, this this Grizzle's very strong view that tangible, we're the era of tangible growth. So make no mistake, we may, we're we seeing some cyclicals rally right now, airlines, et cetera, you know, how they play over the long term. I, I'm not going to be placing lo a lot of chips on airlines over the, over the next 10 years. Let's be no. frank about it, right? Yeah. So there is a trade that's happening right now but I think investors are will be well positioned owning tangible growth. And the way we think about that is that it, Penn Gaming was a great, great call for us. We still believe there's tons of runway there. That's in the sports betting arena and in media. Also, uh, we, we strongly believe the bioplastics is, is here to stay for a very long term. And Danimer Scientific, again, big name for us. Mm -hmm. But then there's pot stocks, Scott. There is U.S. cannabis that's doing real numbers. Can you? That's can, tangible what, growth right there. That's what I like. It, just before we get into that, I'll say for us, tangible growth is kind of a through cycle thing. So we don't waffle. We don't go from tangible growth to like spec growth because there's periods where everyone's on the, the sci-fi growth train and it mm -hmm. might outperform tangible. But when it's out of favor, the sci-fi stuff can go down so much that you're still ahead by just owning tangible growth day in and day out so we're just big believers we never got caught up in the in the big growth spec boom that was no. it really hit ahead early february uh it, we still just said we'll stick with the tangible growth and we have a great chart here to show why that works so the chart is is cannabis it's really the u.s bellwether true leave just looking at performance of true leave tangible growth versus arc innovation etf again that's and this spec sci-fi growth so we're looking at a one-year period uh, of True Leave, which is pro the bellwether, one of the most uh, steady eddy, uh, high well respected high cannabis companies, best run. Kim Rivers is a phenomenal CEO, spinning out lots of cash flow, uh, profitable company, one year performance of True Leave versus Arc. Yeah, and it's it's pretty stark. So True Leave is up three hundred eighty percent in the last year. Arc is up one hundred fifty percent. So massive outperformance from True Leave. And what's interesting here is even when ARC was at its peak early February, True Leave was still outperforming it handily. So that is where if you pick the right tangible growth, you're going to be in a much better situation with less risk. Because we saw ARC was doing well for a while, but when it sold off, it sold off fast. You didn't have a lot of time to get out of that thing. And I know we started the pod recently, uh, <laughs> seven weeks ago now. Yeah. Uh, but... Grizzle's been an entity for three plus years. Uh, we've been banging out hit after hit. Uh, going back a year, I still remember Scott and I publishing the bull market in vice uh, vice stocks. 
Uh, that would be that would be uh, cannabis. That would be alcohol. And uh, and our top picks there were True Leaf and uh, Sam Adams. Oh man, yeah, and Sam Adams worked out better than anyone could have seen just because of those hard seltzers. But uh, True Leaf was was amazing as well. Yeah. So it was, it was yeah, it was timed well. But you see that this is still working, and we we continue to like tangible growth again. Just because spec growth is sold off, uh, we still like tangible growth. I don't. I, the problem with spec growth is as long as interest rates are going up, the cost of money is more expensive. It's just tough out there for those companies that can't show cash flow someday because people are like, "I need show me the money." It's like Jerry Maguire, basically. Yeah, yeah, and and I think over the next coming weeks, obviously, it's going to be volatile for growth stocks. But we will see a structural transition from that sci-fi growth bucket, all of that experiment stuff, into the tangible uh, tangible growth, uh, cannabis being one of them. Yeah. So maybe on that note, we should get into some of the tangible growth, uh, which includes commodities, because we've talked about the shift that's happening in the market, what's working. Yeah. So let's look at some historical lessons for what does well when money's getting more expensive and inflation is starting to go up? So we got a great chart that looks kind of, this is the last, uh, what, 70 years, something like that. Yeah. So pretty comprehensive chart. So Scott, let me give a little bit of background, a little background of the of the market here. But sure. right now, obviously, uh, Grizzle, Grizzle was telling everyone for a long time just to you know, watch the inflation. But now everyone is getting very uh, interested in understanding how things do during periods of inflation. Yeah, exactly. So this chart just looks at inflation as CPI is how the government measures inflation. It's a basket of goods that we purchase every day. Mm -hmm. And so we see that when that's going up, inflation is more of a concern. Real assets, meaning housing, commodities, collectibles, those do much better than financial assets, stocks, basically stocks and bonds. And yeah. so that that works through cycles. Um, it's pretty. It kind of it works all the time. And now we're in a period where it looks like that CPI inflation is back on the move higher. So that's why you're seeing this rotation out of the the non-real assets, the stocks, into the real assets, the commodities, housing, stuff like that. Yeah. And so for those on the pod, very simple here. It's it's a pretty high correlation. Real assets, housing, commodities they outperform financial assets uh basically high correlation through that uh, through that 70s inflationary period and as inflation came back down the reverse financial assets were outperforming and basically we've been in this regime scott since the 1980s to today we've been in this disinflationary regime which has been very um very attractive for financial assets as you would think because yeah. you know where we peaked out in bond yields you would have bonds were, were a strong returning asset class given the compression in yields over the last how many 40 years right Plus. yeah but now is there another regime change because now it looks like inflation is starting to rear its its ugly head will it become a big problem who knows but so far while the market is worried about inflation these mm. real assets are starting to outperform the stocks scott in Chris Wood, uh, in in his piece, I want to say it was a, a week or two ago. He may, he he speaks to that specifically, right? It just uh, just in his career, right? Yeah, and I mean, Chris has been on top of it. He was calling for a cyclical rebound, I think, last September, maybe, and yeah. that was like a month before it really started working. And now February picked up steam, but all those reopen America trades went first, but the commodities were followed pretty shortly after, and they continued to be strong, especially you look at last week. All tech was weak. 
um, the the coppers and and things like that. They all were working. Yeah. So we we ta just talked you through how in general hard assets do, but let's look at we have a nice chart on some of the individual buckets and how mm -hmm. they did in the seventies. Remember the seventies is when inflation really got away from the government, and so that was the closest America's come in a long time to hyperinflation. So it's mm -hmm. good to just kind of look at what assets protected you and what did not during that the high inflation period. And so we looked there and um, number one was gold. Gold is a store of value, remember. So when it, inflation is a problem, your gold is always worth what it's worth. And so it goes up in value with as money becomes less valuable. And then secondarily was commodities. Commodities did very well too. And Scott, let's say, say those numbers, right? So gold, uh, so annualized performances from Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. Go, uh, this is a 10-year performance, uh, 10, 69 to 79, basically. Yeah, and so gold was doing 31% annualized. That's crazy, uh, right? For 10 years, 30%? Not going to wow. lights out. Uh, that the gold, gold, gold bug world and commodities were doing 24% annualized. Yeah, I think those are the two ones that everyone's really got to be thinking, what do I have? Now, Scott, though, uh, that was then. This is now. There's a big competitor on the block to gold, and that's Bitcoin. Yeah, so I don't know, because there's a certain pool of money that's going to go into the gold thesis, but Bitcoin plays perfectly with the gold thesis. So I guess yeah. the question is just how much of that money that would have always gone into gold, there's now a second option for these gold bugs. And so will, can... will, it go, will they go into Bitcoin? I got to say, it's fascinating. And look, at they're all the way on the, on the right. The S&P 500, uh, you know, it did 1.6%. Yeah, not good. So it's not good. Great. You just want to see what there's a really step change because there's 30% a year, 24% a year for commodities. The next best performing was value stocks at only 8%. So still an okay return. But if you're really going to protect yourself against inflation, it is the hard assets. This doesn't have housing split out, but housing is an important component of this too that did much better than stocks. Yeah, so it it's it really is you know you really you got to really think about your portfolio. We've really you know when we talk about tangible growth again, we've always just said, listen, commodities. We're gonna get into it a bit more, but really, it's you're you're in a nice spot here because of just this period of disinvestment. And um, I think when we think a lot of when we think about a lot of millennials, uh, what their portfolio lacks is uh, exposure to uh, that inflationary component. Yeah, because I mean, millennials, they, they use tech products every day. They hear about it a lot. So they're probably more inclined to be more heavy in tech versus old economy, especially with the sustainability aspect, because a lot of old economy stuff is not the cleanest industries. Mm -hmm. So they probably tried to, um, for ESG sustainability reasons, move away from that. But yeah. there's a time still to own those old economy. And it looks like now it's shaping up that way. So I think, Tom, we, we got to talk. We've talked about inflation, what assets have done. Let's drill down into two different asset classes that we really like as your inflation hedge. What is it? It's it's copper and it's housing, right? Yeah. So and, and it's interesting dovetail there on, on copper, right? Because so much of the so much of the realignment of, of potentially um, of the electrification of cars as that category grows copper is a core component there as well. Yeah. So, so we're, we're, Tom's going to take you in a little more depth through copper, why we like it yeah. uh, outside of an inflation hedge, because copper is interesting. There's two ways. There's two reasons we like it. One is inflation hedge. One is just the fundamentals of the copper industry. But first, let's start with housing, because housing is the same type of uh, supply constraints as copper. So mm -hmm. it's interesting to look at that.
So number one, Tom found this great chart earlier today, or uh, I think it was last week, that yeah. just shows how many offers a typical house gets in the U.S. historically. And it goes back to uh, 2015. 2015, okay, so last six years or so. Typically, the houses have been getting 2 to 2.5 offers. Well, where are we now? Above four offers, right? And so basically, we it, you had a 10-year, uh, sort of like, like some 2015 to 2020. Uh, it was basically at two, two and a half. You know, it looks like probably if you went back, I bet it's up around. It's so uh, consistent that it yeah. probably was like that in the past, too. And then basically, it does a hockey stick here where it goes from 2.6 to 4.1 in one year. That's, yeah, that's just like unprecedented. I know me personally, I'm looking at houses outside the Philadelphia area and I'm seeing that firsthand. There are eight offers, there's 12 offers. I heard of one house, it had 100 showings over the weekend, 33 offers on it. Wow. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It's, it, and, and these are stories from Philly to Toronto. Across Outside America. every big city, the story is the same. And even some other places, because remember, COVID has kind of thrown a wrench in the works where all these people who are in the city thinking about buying someday, they're now like, I want to buy now. So the suburbs are just blowing up. That's right. Uh, but it, it, so it doesn't mean this is going to end. This isn't a post. It's not like we get post COVID and all this collapses, because if you look at the inventory situation, houses available versus demand, people wanting to buy a house. It looks in one. the favor of housing prices. Yeah. So we have we have that chart too. It just shows single family homes available for sale. Uh, Multi-decade lows. Multi-decade lows. So you're, you're this. It, so one feeds into the other. There there isn't the inventory right now, and there go and demand, demand is at multi-year highs because all these city dwellers who didn't think they ever wanted to live in the suburbs, COVID has kind of changed the equation. They want to move out. And there's a third piece of it that feeds into the inventories, but you have houses are being built. You know, when there's not enough houses, the builders come out and they want to build you one. But because of 09, a lot of the builders got stung. Remember, they got caught with all this inventory they couldn't sell. So they pulled back on building new houses. And that kind of lasted a few years. That didn't start picking up what we call housing starts. That took till like 2012, 2013 to really start picking up. Now you have all these new home buyers, first-time home buyers. Remember all those articles from a few years ago, people living in their parents' basement? Well, yeah, they yeah. made enough money now, they're ready to buy a house. But okay. the housing formation hasn't caught up. So we're in a period that takes years to figure out. So demand's going to be strong for a while. There's not enough houses being built. What does that mean? Pricing could be very resilient. So we think yeah, housing is going to be a good inflation hedge. Plus, just a good investment as it always is, but right now it's particularly a, a decent time. Yeah, and, and uh, so you can kill that chart. So, Scott, one thing very interesting here, and, and uh, this is something very real, right? It, well, the the reality on the ground for a home buyer is they're looking at this tight inventory situation. So, you know, that's that's real. But the other the other part is that people know there's inflation in the system, Scott, and people know that these are at, we're at historical low interest rates. So what's your incentive? How does this play out in terms of, you know, strategizing? Am I going to buy a house two years from now when rates are higher? Or do I get that house now when rates are low, uh, you know, ahead of the interest move higher? Close so, to all time lows. I mean, they're up a percent or something, but I, I know mortgage rates right now in the U.S. for a 30 year mortgage are above, a little above 3%. Yeah. 
when I bought a house in 2014, I paid 4.3. So still, still below 2014, right? It's still cheaper. Yeah. So, you know, you, you, you really have the incentive there to act now, right? So, so that what you could see right now, and in addition, we can, we're going to talk about it next week a little more, but potentially you're seeing people rotate away from stocks. You know, that, that was a huge generator of returns in 2020 and say, listen, you know, you come back to the flipping economy because we're kind of set up for that. You, you're setting up for a, a very powerful year in housing um, in, uh, in the economy right now versus potentially uh, stocks, which, which had a phenomenal 2020. Yeah. And it, so for anyone who's not clear on why uh, housing works so well when there's inflation, think of it this way. When you get a mortgage, you're on the hook for the same payment every month. You're paying your, your hundred bucks, your thousand bucks. But if there's inflation, the value of money is going down. So that same thousand dollars is worth less. So as long as you keep your job or you and your income can keep up with inflation, think about your payment is cheaper, cheaper, cheaper as inflation picks up. So that's why, first of all, you have a house, which is the hard asset that will go up in yep. value. But the more debt you have, people who owe debt are the winners in inflationary environments, people who are owed money who have lent money they are the losers when there's inflation so that's why housing is so powerful when there's an inflationary uh, situation going on yeah now copper 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 is just as uh, attractive for uh, two different reasons as the housing market so yeah so so copper we gotta let's look at the inventory level let's just talk about inventory yeah, so we looked at housing We're, inventory that's important also in copper you gotta look at inventories what yeah, are they telling us? So basically, this is this is a decade plus of uh, of inventories, global copper inventories. We're at basically uh, decade lows, right? So the combination of COVID has impacted this situation. We're also, uh, which we'll talk about the next chart, this uh, there just hasn't been enough investment. So we're setting up uh, for copper to be in a very strong situation. Copper also has a high correlation to housing as well. It's a, it's a key input there yeah, as well. Yeah, there's a lot of copper it's, in your house if you look in the walls. Exactly, and, and there's a lot of there's a lot of copper that just feeds into the economy, right? So we're doing everything right now, this infrastructure build out uh, in the U.S., all of the money that is being thrown at the economy, one of the cleanest ways to do it, this is why they call it Dr. Copper, Scott, which and Dr. Copper is, is always a sign of health in the economy, uh, or at least a sign of inflation telling you there things are moving. Copper is base one. What's interesting to me here is in this inventory chart, it's almost back to where it was in 07, which was the last boom in commodities, but the price of copper is not as high as it was in 07, 08. No, it's it's still it's still below its its all time high. Not, not too much, right? You know, we're in so, but we're still we are still in in a setup where uh, there there's a ton of room uh, upside, uh, just given where we stand right now. I think the real to look at the real upside here, we have to look at how much investment has been put in the ground over the over the last multi decade since basically the the last uh, commodity broom. Uh, let's pull that. Yeah, so there's inventories which are low, but if the industry can drill a lot and find new new copper quickly, then that's not a big problem. So you got to look at what's the investment that's been put into to drilling for new copper. Yeah, and so this this is a clear one here. This so for those basically for those on the pod, just very simply put, 
we were there was a ton of uh, there was a ton of money that was being invested in mining uh, mining exploration in America. This is this is a good proxy here. America is a good proxy. So fixed in, in fixed in investment in mining exploration uh, in U.S. dollars billion. So it was nearly five hundred billion. Right, that was the peak of the commodity commodity boom uh, back in the seventies. We were seeing five hundred billion into the ground because what, because what why there was inflation and the price of copper went through the roof, and then everyone wanted to drill for it. Yeah, so the best way to incentivize uh, investment is to have high prices, Scott. Yep. So, uh, so lo and behold, uh, commodity prices were high. What do you get? You get a lot of people drilling for it. it, it it's like clockwork since uh, this is how commodity markets have worked since the dawn of the modern economy. Since the caveman. <laughs> since the caveman. <laughs> they didn't have copper in their caves, I don't think. Well, they didn't have what copper piping like, in their caves. Let's say that. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so, and and what what happens after that? When uh, when you come through afterwards, uh, inflationary period, and when commodities fall, well, lo and behold, no one's investing. And we've seen that since the seventies, it were at basically like negligible, Scott. And this chart is like down near zero, like maybe it maybe half, it maybe fifty million. Yeah, there's not a lot of people looking for copper in, in North America. Yeah, maybe 50 billion, maybe less than that. So we we went all the way from getting investing 500 billion uh, and down to per year down to now in around 50 or less. So so this is a great chart just to show the structural setup in copper going forward. Now finally, how do we think about it? Stocks. Uh, this yeah, is why. Yeah, so you got to look at valuations in copper if you're thinking of playing copper. Uh, Tom is a good chart just talking about the valuations, where we think it looks attractive to own copper miners. Yeah, and copper mining stocks are the are the the most tangible way to get upside in 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 a commodity boom. You, two reasons: you get the operational leverage, Scott. Just because uh, the higher the prices go, your costs remain relatively fixed. It's a mining enterprise, so you'll capture that margin enhancement. And also, these companies have financial leverage inside, so you get that you get that uplift. So these the 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 copper, the mining stocks do better than the commodities. That's how it always works on the upside. And that works on the reverse as well. But we're, we're talking about the up here. Now, what we look at very simply is we look at how do the large cap copper mining companies look versus the small mid. This is a very stark difference. And uh, what we're looking at here is on a price to cash. We'll talk to price to cash flow. So that's that's a metric that matters with with the mining, right? It's price to cash flow is, is the most. Yeah, exactly. Mining. And price and each one of these you can kind of have a little different look, but it, so price to cash flow, we're large caps are trading at thirteen point three times price to cash flow. Small and mid cap copper companies are trading at seven point two. Wow, so it's half, right? So there's half. there's a fifty percent discount for the small guys. Same holds for uh, EV to EBITDA. So uh, it's a more enterprise value way to look at it. it includes the debt, uh, but similar. How does this, how does it look? 16.3 times for the large cats, 6.7 for the small, wow, right? So even a and, little bigger discount for the small. Exactly. And price to sales, again, uh, 5.4 times for the large cat, 2.1 for the small mid. So just really, what does this mean? Well, flat out, small mid is where the value is, uh, but more importantly, when you look at this situation, it's if you're a large cap miner, by definition, most large mining companies, large oil and gas companies applies across all commodities is growth more or less versus your small cap peers. It's always less. Mm -hmm. It's hard to it's hard to get new growth because you're such a big entity. So in commodity super cycles, which we are what we're entering, one of the key features of a commodity super cycle 
is that MA, the MA boom is intact. And it's especially, it'll especially be there when there is this big valuation difference of, of large cap versus small cap. So the easiest way for a large cap company to add, um, add copper pounds to their production, uh, yearly production, is to go out and buy a small mid cap miner as opposed to putting equity into the ground right now. Yeah, so if you want to drill, it can take years and a lot of uh, hiccups along the way. But if the small guys already have a, uh, they've drilled and they're producing and they're cheap enough, it's just much easier for you to buy these guys, right? It just gets yeah. you where you need to be much faster. Exactly. So guys, we did a, uh, we did a total overview. It's available on YouTube. It's available on grizzle.com. Running through that. Yeah, you got to uh, check that the, out. It was much more in-depth on copper than this. It's basically 13 or 14 charts showing you exactly why we like car copper and the market looks like it's setting up for another commodity super cycle. Yeah, have a look there. And we lay out all the stocks and how they screen. It's detailed. It's all there for you. Go check it out. Sierra Metals is the one we've, we've said looks cheap across the board. Looks very interesting. That's a nice setup. And that's a, that's uh, a small, small cap, right? Small cap. HUD Bay also screened well. And on the large cap, if you're if you're intent on owning large caps, uh, you know that's a, that's a little more challenging. We just I you know it, it's it's a struggle there. I, I n nothing that we think uh, we we just think the dynamics are so much better to just owning small mid, um, much better setup. So. And for anyone who doesn't know, Tom used to manage a commodity portfolio of what was it over a billion dollars, something like that. Yeah. So we we had a commodity complex that was uh, half a bill. So that was uh, that was all just pure commodity funds. But then when you looked at across the entire franchise, because Canada, I was co-manager on the Canadian Equity Fund at TD. That there was a huge commodity component there, and then in addition to the international. Yeah. Lots of money. So you're, you're hearing from a guy <laughs> who had to do this professionally it, it, through cycles. And so uh, this this is some really good info that you only get from years of experience because it's not readily apparent from just looking at the charts and saying, oh, small is cheap versus large. Because what we're telling you is just because small is cheap, it doesn't mean that it's going to trade up with the large caps. So how, how is this gap closed, Tom? I guess what you're basically saying is it's not necessarily the market is going to keep buying up small caps until they equal the multiple of large caps. It's more the large caps will buy the right small caps, and that's where you get the uplift. So as long yeah. as you pick the right small caps, that's how you'll get that you'll close that gap. Well, totally. And so you, obviously you want the small cap that uh, that is obviously cheap. If B, you want the one that actually has uh, has growth potential. Uh, but what ends up happening is that you'll once you get through this super cycle, uh, once you get through this M&A boom, you'll start to see small caps trade at a premium, Scott. Why? Because they actually have growth and large caps don't. So that's wow. you know, you'll okay. The, so, you'll get to this so on their own, the market may close that gap. You don't have to rely on mergers and acquisitions then. Well, you, they still need growth. That's the critical part, right? So that's the that's the missing disconnect. So large cap can continue to buy small cap even if those small caps don't have growth, because then it just it shows it's it's basically acquired growth. It's not organic growth, but because there are multiple differences, it all works. But once the multiples are the same, that becomes challenging. So then you're looking to acquire companies that actually have inventory, i.e. inventory to be drilled and then future production to be had. So the easy, but the the best thing is the easy money has not been made on the small caps yet, right? Because we're early on in the super cycle. There's still the 50% discount. They won't always be like that. So you have, it, what you're saying is later on, once the valuation gap is closer, you got to pick the right small cap that's still growing. Now they need to have the assets. They need to have copper in the ground and they need to be cheap. They, though, they may get taken out. 
Exactly. Interesting. Yeah, so this exactly. is the early days for everyone listening. So there's there's big opportunities in the copper complex because the price hasn't really started to to run like we think it could. And we've we've been uh, we've been on this uh, since the since uh, mid 2020. Uh, if, if for folks who've been following Grizzle out, uh, you know we're we we highlight opportunities all the time. This this is one that we, we yeah think we did is, have uh, oil too. Um, you know because oil you really ignore it unless there's a, a downturn of some sort. And so we came back into oil, made good money on Exxon, and then left it alone. But now because of this inflation situation, oil is, is looking interesting, much less interesting than copper. It doesn't have all these benefits of, of low inventory, things like that. Way less interesting. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't um, worry yourself too much about oil. Just stick with copper. You'll be you'll be good. Yeah. Yeah. Now what do we got? Pot so stocks. One other uh, commodity. Everyone argues it's not a commodity, but it is. I'm sorry. Yeah. So uh, we, we just wanted to put the, the pot stock self in perspective. It's been selling off along with all that spec growth because it's it's similar pools of money and people think of it the same. The, mm -hmm. the difference is these go to the moon companies, they don't have revenue, let alone cash flow for five years. Cannabis companies have cash coming out everywhere. Like they have way yeah. more cash, than they, not more cash than they know what to do with, but they are some of the most profitable companies out there right now. And we think that's going to continue for a few years. So just... I have a nice chart looking at the sell-off in perspective lately. This is one that I like. It doesn't show when stocks hit new highs. This chart isn't that helpful. It's better when you see a stock sell-off just to say, okay, this time's different. It's down way more than it's been in the past, or this looks like a typical kind of, uh, we have a sell-off and then things bounce back. So if, if we look back over the last six months in pod stocks, I have the four big multi-state operators here. Right now, like this sell-off is just a typical sell-off. They went down up to 30% back in uh, September, bounced right back, went to all-time highs. Uh, same type of thing now. We have the companies are down between 8 and 28%. Trulieve is actually doing the best. It's only down 8 So Trulieve is like the bellwether. It goes yeah. up less than uh, everyone else when everyone's bowled up on cannabis. But in a sell-off, it'll protect your portfolio. So it's good. To, it's a core that you should always have. But this is this time isn't different. You kind of have to step back a bit, not look at the stock prices and say, has anything changed fundamentally for the growth of cannabis in the US? And the answer is no. We're still looking for the Safe Banking Act is the next catalyst you're gonna look for that has been introduced in the House and Senate. What has happened is uh, spec growth is less in favor. So cannabis is being sold off with that. Some people may be a little disappointed that safe banking isn't directly gonna lead to um, Canadian listed stocks to move to the US, but that will eventually happen. It still is the catalyst. It just is not as simple as flip the switch. But for us, we just look at, are these companies still growing fast? Are they growing cash flow fast? Yes. Are there still regulatory catalysts where they can, that will increase growth two to five years from now? Yes. Nothing's changed except the stocks have gotten cheaper. So if you're getting a little nervous about your cannabis positions, First of all, make sure you don't have more than you can afford to lose in cannabis. Remember, it should never be- It's still a risky asset. Yeah, it's still risky. It should never be a majority of your portfolio. But you just got to step back and say, has anything changed for the industry? No, still looks very attractive. It's just if you have dry powder, extra cash, you can get these at a 8 to 30% discount. Yeah, so it's it, again we're we're of the view it's that transition from this whole side. Uh, growth is growth is getting rattled right now. We think 
those will those that will hold tangible growth over the long term will be better positioned uh, than those that own sci-fi. Yeah, tangible growth will bounce back because eventually, you know, quarter after quarter with earnings, they're going to be showing more and more cash flow. So if the yeah. stock doesn't go anywhere, remember the stock just gets cheaper and cheaper. And it hits that point where it's just too cheap for investors and they say, I got to buy it and it goes back up. So it's kind of a, a rebalancing mechanism underlying yeah. when you have real operations versus if it's just, I'm so excited about going to Mars, Oh, well, tomorrow I'm not so excited. What's the downside there? There's really no yeah. floor. Well said, well said. Guys, uh, everyone, thank you for uh, tuning in to another pod. This is Grizzle Pod 7. We're going to keep the freight train going. Grizzle, don't quit. Guys, um, please do give this a, 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 a rating. Give it a comment. Let everyone know. Share it with a friend. Uh, also, those on YouTube, if you're, if you're watching on YouTube, that's your preferred format, please do try to go to iTunes or Spotify. Give it the ranking here. The goal is to make this the best, the biggest pod coming out in 2021. We're, we're, we're grinding here. We're going to take this to the top. Remember, inflation doesn't care who you are and how much you make and how old you are. It's coming for everyone. So make sure you uh, spread the word on this one. This is something that everyone needs to hear. All the stuff we've talked about, housing, copper, inflation, it's its important stuff. Yeah, and guys, we're we are putting bets on the table. We, you know, we're, we're there with you. We're, this is not just, uh, this is not just uh, cooler talk, water cooler yeah, talk. Yeah, <laughs> Don't worry, we're, we're invested in the stuff we talk about that we think is going to work. We'll tell you if it's not working, um, but it's definitely, in, inflation in, uh, impacts every piece of your life. So it's it's a very important thing to watch. You, you just want to understand what's going on and how to protect yourself if, if it gets there. Everyone, thank you. We'll be back again next week. Thanks for tuning in to Grizzle Pod.